Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Songhezomabete on SAFM. Ms. Lauren Graham, Center for Social Development in Africa at the University of Johannesburg, talking to us about social protections post-COVID-19. Lauren, good evening. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much for having me on the show and hi to your listeners. Let's talk about South Africa right now. Let's talk about the plight of those who are on the margins of everything, social protections in particular, and what the disposition is for them now before we talk about social protections and what we are clearly learning as we move with the COVID times that we will need to correct post-COVID-19, whenever that will be. Yes. I think what we've seen um, deepening in in the COVID-19 pandemic is existing inequalities. Um, And so the people that are most affected by unemployment, for instance, are women, are the poorer people, are people who are in the informal labor market. And so what COVID-19 really does is it shines a very stark light on inequalities that have plagued this country for many, many years and deepens those inequalities. And it says to us, we need to be thinking differently about how we respond, not just during the COVID-19 pandemic, but more generally in ways that we can better support those who are most vulnerable in our population and in the labor market. I mean, we are seeing how vulnerable the healthcare in South Africa, the entire healthcare space is. Private sector, government, they are both vulnerable, albeit that the public sector is that much more vulnerable. We have seen the education set up in the country, from basic education right through to tertiary, how it is so contingent on many things happening right at the same time, because right now very little teaching and learning is taking place. We've also seen generally how businesses are vulnerable, vulnerable to something which nobody like this COVID-19 pandemic could ever have predicted. But at the same time, COVID, as you have said, has just highlighted many other things which were always there, but for whatever reason, the red flag was never raised or was not raised and addressed. Of course, nothing of the kind is going to change now because it's all about survival. We're not building any institutions. I don't get the sense there's any building taking place or any infrastructure renewal of any kind or rebooting of any of these academic systems or healthcare systems or even small business development in particular, the protections around there. What are your thoughts on this? Because ultimately all of these things eat into social protections. Absolutely. And and our research really focuses on those inequalities in the labor market um, in particular. And so what we've seen is that Although people in the formal labor market in higher earning jobs have perhaps faced some job cuts um, and salary cuts, by far the worst affected are those that are in the informal labor market and those who are in short-term contracts. Those are the people who've been the hardest by this. So if you think about, for instance, um, Uber drivers, uh, we mm. would classify mm. them as in the vulnerable component of the labor market because they're not in a formal employment contract with Uber. They're essentially self-employed. Um, similarly, your um, uh, informal traders uh, that, mm. that provide so, so, so many vital resources in, in communities have really been hard hit by this, um, this pandemic. And they are, the, what we point out in our research is it's that these people who are not covered by any form of social protection. So if we think about 
our social protection system, our grant system, it, it addresses children up to the age of 18. It addresses those mm. with disabilities and it addresses those with um, those who are older who are no longer working with the old age pension. Those who are in working age, the assumption is that income comes through employment. But the reality is we know we've had growing unemployment for many years. Now we've yes. lost million jobs during this COVID-19 pandemic, and even amongst those who are employed, so many of them are not, are not in formal labor market, therefore are not contributing to UIF, for instance, and so in a situation mm-hmm. like this, uh, they have no safety net to fall back on. They can't access UIF, there's no grants they can access, and so we see the, the terrible effects of poverty and how close they are, how vulnerable they are to dropping into poverty in circumstances such as this. And when people are there, the easiest and the quickest thing that can happen, or rather the closest thing that can happen, is the scorched earth policy, where, well, it becomes a free-for-all and it becomes literally a survival of the fittest. Not to suggest that this is where South Africa is headed, but I mean, that is very likely when especially so many young people in particular do not have access points for fulfilling their potential. Now, this then becomes a prerogative, first of all, of government and to an extent the social obligations of those who have, for instance, big business. To the extent that we now know the diagnosis, as you have given us out, that these are the people who are vulnerable, especially for these reasons, what collaborations can take place between government and big business for the rebooting and boosting of small business, particularly young people in small business? So I think uh, there's certainly uh, work to be done on small business development. And historically, what we've seen is that small businesses amongst young people who are employed, uh, which is a minority of young people, sadly, but amongst those who are employed, the majority of them are actually employed in small businesses. And so Correct. I would say there's certainly um, potential to work with small businesses and strengthen small businesses so that we can boost that kind of employment. But in the current context, that's going to be remarkably difficult. I think small businesses have been hardest hit in, in, in this context. And so small businesses have struggled for some years, and now that is even that, that's deepened. But our work specifically looks at what are social policy responses to this. So we've seen, for instance, um, an emergency COVID social relief of distress grant that was um, put forward by by President Ramaphosa early on. There's been a lot of hiccups with rolling that out, and we're yet to see how many people are receiving that grant. But, but those sorts of state responses are crucial, particularly in times like this, but we can't only rely on the state. We do have to be working with employers and business to say, how do we formulate responses that respond to the vulnerability and irregularity and informality of so much work? And we're likely to see growth in that form, those forms of work in the gig economy in the digital era. Those are the forms of work mm. that are likely to grow. So we do have to be thinking about how do we work with businesses, how do we work with the state to have policy responses that ensure that people don't fall through the cracks. We're going to talk about gig economy in a minute. I've got, ladies and gentlemen, please call us because this conversation cannot and will not last forever. 
we have Ms. Lauren Graham, Center for Social Development in Africa, based at the University of Johannesburg. Social protections post-COVID-19. Of course, we know the numbers by now, and even if we don't have the exact numbers, whatever number that is in your head right now, I know it is not a number that any society that is progressive ought to be mentioning in the context of its development. And of course, South Africa's social protections generally have been exposed for the lack of protection that they actually offer for particularly the vulnerable women, children, young people in particular, although this conversation is focused in the labor market, labor market of young people, social protections for those in employment, but essentially are not really covered for in times such as these. Ms. Lauren Graham continues the conversation with me now for another 15 minutes. Let's have a conversation then. 0891-104-207. Lauren, you spoke about policy and, and, and policy ought to be derived from, at a minimum, the Constitution through Section 27 thereof. And in relevant part, it reads, everyone has the right to have access to healthcare services, including reproductive health care, sufficient food and water, and social security, including if they are unable to support themselves and their dependents, appropriate social assistance. And there's an obligation that is placed on the state within its available resources and reasonable legislative means to make this right progressively realizable. Now, let's talk about social grants, the 350. What is your experience or what has your research told you about the success of these 350? We know it's not going to be enough. I mean, that's clear. But the 350, can you say anything in relation to this that government has otherwise made available for the country? Yeah, and so absolutely. I think firstly, I think the fact that the government has responded in that way is to be commended. Um, it's, you know, South Africa, we often, we often focus on the negatives in South Africa, but we actually have a fairly robust social grant system that is heralded as a world-class um, or, or that, that teaches lessons to many other countries about a uh, social grant system. And the fact that we were able then to, to introduce that 350 very quickly during the, or announce that very quickly into the lockdown is to be commended. Of course, as always, there are challenges on the implementation. Now, our research hasn't yet focused on that um, because we're still going to need to assess what, um, what the effects have been and how many people have received it. Anecdotal evidence from people that we've heard from is that there have been huge problems with delivery of that grant, that people who have applied have been declined, that it's not clear why they've been declined. Um, and so we expect that there's probably been challenges with that. Where there's been more success is the top-ups of the existing grants. Um, and the fact that we have an extensive grant system in a, in a context like this is to our benefit because it was fairly easy to go with existing beneficiaries, particularly child support grant beneficiaries, and top-up the grant so that there's more income going into households in times like this. Um, so that was... was very effective, although, as you say, uh, never enough given the loss of income and loss of other support that, that vulnerable people have faced. But it remains to be seen what the effect of the, the social relief of distress COVID-19 grant is. And as I understand it from uh, the budget speech, the, the midterm or the revised budget speech uh, last month, is that that is due to end in October. 
But the reality is that the recovery period after COVID-19 is going mm. to be much longer than that. Ms. Lauren Graham, Center for Social Development in Africa at the University of Johannesburg. Social protections, the conversation post-COVID-19. We can't talk about post-COVID-19 when we are dealing with the lack, shall I say, of social protections. And whilst, of course, there is a constitution to safeguard against that, and even in Lauren's words, policy and government's response, at least on paper, is sound, if not very good, if not comparable to some of the best policies in the world, the problem then does lie with implementation to the extent that from an implementation perspective, you find that you have been compromised in your social protections. Are you in a business or labor market environment that has clearly been exposed for the lack of social protections? Are you an Uber driver? Are you an artist? Are you somebody who right now doesn't know the difference between left and right simply because you don't know where your next opportunity lies? Please do give us a call 0891-104-207. Lauren, a little later on this evening, we have a conversation with two young gentlemen who decided to found the Lockdown House Party, which essentially is a virtual party club scene vibes on Channel O and they've had sponsors. And we're going to talk to them in terms of the business model around that and how they have, in a way, created some form of cushioning the landing in terms of the effects of COVID. But I mean, there are just two DJs out of a whole host who simply do not have that platform or who have not been as lucky. Equally, this evening, we're going to be talking later on to the National Arts Festival in Gramstown. It had to go virtual this year, very different. And the revenue generated from there would obviously very would obviously be very different. So when we're talking about the gig economy and how current labor and economic practices can be translocated physically to the gig economy, how seamless is that transition? How seamless has that transition been? How seamless could it yet be? And where then are the opportunities? Because there is this, and I think it's a myth, but I'm sure you can speak to it a little bit more than I can that the gig economy is taking jobs away. It might take my job away, but I'm sure, this is my view, it will create another two jobs elsewhere. So I might be out of employment, but somebody else might be in employment in the greater value chain of the gig economy. Talk to us then, please. This gig Mm. economy, what is it and what opportunities does it offer? So when we talk about the gig economy, we're talking about uh, jobs that are created through uh, the digital um, digital and fourth industrial revolution input. So, as you say, there's a lot of talk about how many jobs could be lost through artificial intelligence, for instance. Um, but, but there's also, we see a lot of growth in this area, particularly for young people. And some of that is self-generated, like the examples that you've already given. And some of that is generated through systems like business process outsourcing, where um, Digital systems can support call center, um, the growth of the call center industry, for instance, or Uberized work, different forms of Uberized work. Uh, we've got, you would have heard of uh, various different domestic worker um, apps, for instance. And so there's a lot of opportunity with the gig economy and, and stepping stones into the labor market for, for young people in particular and often for people who would traditionally be excluded from the labor market. So there's a lot of potential there. The challenge with it is that it tends to go hand in hand with more vulnerability of employment. So the example that we gave earlier in that a lot of forms of gig work are around, uh, are, are generated around the idea of self-employment, that you are self-employed and you just use the app to uh, 
to access job opportunities. Um, and similarly, it could be paid per per delivery or per truck rather than, you, you know, knowing what salary you get at the end of the month. Those forms of work are typically excluded from what we call the social contract. So the social contract is what is afforded to people in the formal labor market, but if you can't make it to work on a day because you're ill or you have um, a family responsibility, that you get leave pay or that you have leave provision. So you're not going to lose a day's pay when you have to take those um, those days leave. Whereas if you're self-employed in the gig economy and in other forms of self-employment, if you don't work on that day, you don't get any pay. <coughs> and, and so, and, and typically also if you're in the formal labor market, there's contributions you're making to UIF and to private um, funds that form a basis of protection in times where you're too ill to work for longer periods of time or where you're afraid. The people who are working in the gig economy don't have access to that. And so although the gig economy is an opportunity of, of job growth potentially, it is also mm-hmm. of vulnerable employment. And that's where we're saying we need to be thinking differently about social policy responses to the labor market. I think that's a great point in terms of once it may create jobs, it might create down the line more of the same types of problems in that all of these people are onboarded, but they are still vulnerable because there are no these bases of social protections. Excellent point, Lauren Graham. Let's have a call. Babun Monde, we didn't get through to you yesterday. I beg your pardon for that. I'll take the blame. You are on air now. Shoot, you've got all of five minutes with Lauren's response. Not your fault. You say, I call it Serho. It was my phone, it ran out of battery. Anyway, I want to find out who calculates what is required to extricate people from poverty. Now, I understand poverty from economics point of view that there are two types of poverty and relative poverty. Now, we're going to have to explain this thing for the sake of time. Now, Sundays was 350 for 2,150. The current social grant as we are now. Whose brains is it that this is sufficient for a human being to live on? Right? Where did you get calculated by economists, by actuaries? I want to find out because from where I'm seated, the poor, the poorest <clears throat> cannot survive this social grant as it were. Solution. I wonder if high speed people currently can reduce their income so that the reduction amount can be spread almost evenly, equitably, mm-hmm. right? In other words, we use the income that we currently have. Right, calculated by the GDP of the country, which is in billions, whatever. So, don't we scale down the highest income and those that are something? For example, those that are working in the banking sector, the CEOs of banks, I understand they are earning obscene salary, right? Three fifty million. My goodness, deadly on called coup the bank. Coup the bank meaning you've got the corporates and individuals, right? No price for guessing most of it, 
of those individuals are. But they are holding this money, Sogezo. They are holding it, right? Which could be used productively in the economy, right? Because Sogezo, whatever we are earning, we tend to consume it. So in terms of consumption expenditure, this can fuel GDP. The more we spend, the more the economy can demand, and the more mm. there can be production. In other words, there can be investment. So also, Finally. Remember, savings and investment in econometrics must be intertwined, right? So in short, so also, we've got our solutions within us, but we need a heart. Good evening, so also. Good evening indeed, Babungonde. Thank you so much for your thoughts. Lauren, you heard all of what Babungonde has said. Your response to him? I'm afraid I didn't catch all of it. As far as I heard, the first point was about how do we come up with the, the figures of the 350 and that, if that's sufficient enough. Um, sure. So, so that, on that point, it's, there's various different models that go into it. And partly it's driven by the Statistics South Africa poverty lines um, that they draw, and there's a lot of debate about those poverty lines, um, but it, it really comes down to affordability in the budget at the end of the day, and if we have smaller amounts, can we reach more people, and if we have higher amounts, we can reach fewer people, um, and so I guess it's a budget balancing act. Um, the assumption being that the grant in and of itself should not be the only form of income. It's a basic um, income that people can rely on, but that there should be other forms of income coming into the household. And, of course, the current context has severely constrained those other forms of income coming into households. Um, I didn't quite get the second point, but I understood it to be around... The second point was essentially in terms of the social contract to the extent that I understood him, because essentially he was talking about the responsibility of those who have to even earn less. And to the extent that Mm. there is money within these spaces of savings, for that money to be spent, create a demand, have more money circulating within the economy so as to boost, if you like, economic activity. And in that way you'll be taking care of social protections through economic activity with the hope that in time there is sufficient recovery of the economy and, of course, on the proviso COVID itself dissipates, and then things, to the extent possible, can go back to normal. You want to respond to that? Mm. Yeah, so I think that's a very difficult thing to, to change in our, in our current system, but it's certainly worth thinking about. Um, and I think that the, if, the, if the pandemic shows us anything, it really just uh, shows up those vast inequalities that we need to be addressing, not just from the bottom up, but from the top down as well. Um, how we do that is up for debate and a very contentious issue. And I think the one response has been around the solidarity fund, but that is, you know, it forms then as a, as a charity, a, a philanthropic giving, um, and whether that's sustainable or not is, is, a, is a question worth asking. Final question, and, and it's related to that. Charity. For the most part, this is Songhezo's view, South Africa's social security system is based on charity. I ask this every time I can ask, why do we not have social protections and related security being on a transactional basis. I'm not saying vulnerable people are not entitled to that. It's a constitutional settlement. It doesn't matter what my opinion is on that. 
but surely somebody can do more in the receipt of that social protection to own it. Not necessarily to earn it, but to own it. We've got so many people, for instance, these people who are 350 rands worth in government's eyes for the next six months in the in relation to COVID-19 austerity measures and their related protection. It's just money they are getting. What are they doing to get that money? Can there be no investment by the recipient of the grant into the country? Time even, skills, something so that the relationship between the grant recipient and the grant giver, me and you who are earning more so that we can provide for those who are not earning, therefore get grants, can feel some form of relationship between the amounts of money we are contributing towards social protections and those who are earning the social protections, it speaks to their dignity. Surely mm. more can be done because charity, in my view, is destructive. Sure, and we do, so there's, there's two responses to that. One is that um, we do have that in the form of our expanded public works program and community works program, which could be argued to be a social protection mechanism that people are working for. The other is that some of our um, doctoral students have done some work looking at how grant beneficiaries use the money. And typically what we see is that they invested in further livelihood strategies that generate further income for their uh, their households and to invest into their local economy, purchasing items in their local economy. And those are the stories that remain untold. And those are the stories that we really do need to get out there to show that grant beneficiaries, by and large, do firstly use the grants well, and secondly, that they are investing in their own livelihoods through this regular and secure form of income. One of the challenges, of course, is that because the amounts typically are quite small, they tend to go to covering only basic needs with very small amounts left over for um, investing in other activities. But certainly that's a debate, a continual debate, and it's one that um, is a discourse we need to continue engaging with. Fantastic. Well, when there's more to be said about this, and I'm sure there shall be very soon, we'll be glad to have you back for now. Thank you so much for your time, Ms. Lauren Graham. Thank you very much. Have a good evening. Lauren, certainly. Lauren Graham, Centre for Social Development in Africa at the University of Johannesburg.